Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that is good and perfect comes from you. You're the heart of my contentment, hope for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. With all that is happening in the world around us today, I thought it might be worthwhile to talk this morning about prayer. Prayer. Our scripture came from the 15th chapter of John, and I want to lift up the 7th verse, which reads, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. The word abide is really important. It means to be at home or to take heart. In the 119th Psalm and the 11th verse, the psalmist says, Thy word have I hid in my heart. Paul, in his prayer in the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, he said, That Christ may dwell in your hearts. There's a very big difference between the head and the heart. The head, which serves as a metaphor for the mind, is affected by data and information, and as such can easily be influenced with new information, thereby making it quite fickle. And without too much effort, we can change our minds 100 times in a single day concerning a single issue, thereby making our minds quite impressionable. But not so the heart. The heart is very different. If you've ever suffered a broken heart, you may have known in your head that he or she was not for you, or you may have been better off without them, whatever the reasons are, your mind can tell you that you are now better off without them, but you still cared for them even after the breakup. Why is that? Simply because when the mind can let go, the heart tends to hold on a little bit longer. This is why the Lord wants His Word to dwell there in our hearts. God's truth and His Word must not just be written on paper, it has to be written on your heart. But how does the Word of God get to your heart? How does it get there? And, and, and how does it happen that it's able to abide in you the way Jesus is asking us to? Well, it's with this in mind that I want to speak about prayer and the importance of it. Therefore, I've titled this message quite simply, Just Ask Him. Just Ask Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you now for the preaching hour. Lord, you are the center of our joy. 
You are our contentment. You are our peace. You are our hope. And so today, Father, we invite your Holy Spirit now to speak through the preacher and help us understand something about abiding in you and what it means to have you abide in us. This is our prayer, and we pray this in faith. Come now, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. As you all know, Jesus was perfect. He was God who came in the flesh, and he dwelt among us. He suffered as we suffered, and he experienced the same challenges and troubles that you and I face every single day. I'm reminded in the 51st chapter of the book of Isaiah and the third verse where it says, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The idea here is that Jesus knows our pains. He understood our fears. He could relate to all of the challenges that you and I are experiencing today. And there is nothing under the sun that you could ever go through in your life that Jesus did not have an association or, as Isaiah tells us, an acquaintance with. And yet... Despite all the problems and the struggles and the challenges that Jesus faced, he remained quite sinless. Having never done anything wrong in all of his life, Jesus walked this earth demonstrating to us what it means to be human, what it means to be expressing humanity in its perfect form. Jesus demonstrated that for us perfectly. And even in his perfection as a human being, Jesus still thought it necessary to pray. Having never done anything wrong in his life, Jesus found it necessary to pray. There's a poem that was penned by Annie Johnson Flint that I find especially, especially uh, telling about Jesus. Let me read for you the poem and indulge me for a moment. This is what it says. Since Christ was God, why must he pray? By him all things were known and made, omniscient, and omnipotent, why need he ask for aid? Ah, but he put his glory by, forgot a while his power great, humbled himself, took human form, and stripped himself of royal state. For Christ was also man to feel, man's strongest tempting and to know. His utmost weakness he became like other men and suffered so. And touch with our infirmities for those few years like us to be. He still remembers we are dust. He was tempted like as we. But well he knew the source of help. Whence comes all power, strength, and peace. In blessed communion with his God, care and perplexity would cease. When all earth's sorrow and its sin too heavy on his spirit weighed, quiet and solitude, he sought and to his father prayed. Jesus prayed. Let me say that again. Jesus prayed. And if Jesus, who knew no sin, needed to pray, then how much more should we? Jesus prayed. Prayer is important, and prayer 
is necessary for the believer. So in essence, as Jesus was talking to his disciples, telling them to abide in him and let his word abide in them, ask whatever we wish and it will be so, Jesus was in essence saying these words to the disciples. He said, if you're clinging to me, if your life is intertwined with mine, you can ask whatever you want and your prayers will be answered without exception. Notice the qualification. If you cling to me, and if your life is intertwined with mine, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be so. Prayer is asking God to do what only God can do. But there's a problem with most of our prayers. And this is the problem that we see, and James describes it very well for us in this fourth chapter and the second and third verses. He says, you have not because you ask not. But when you ask, you receive not because you ask amiss. Our prayers are hindered because not only do we not ask, meaning many of us don't even think it's necessary or important to pray, that's the first problem, but even when we do pray, James tells us that we ask amiss, meaning our requests are out of line and out of step with the will of God. Beloved, the simple point here is that whenever we are not in the word of God, whenever we are not clinging to God, whenever we are not abiding in him, we don't know how to pray. And when we do not know how to pray, we miss God. Prayer and the word of God go hand in hand. And we are in the word. We are supposed to be in the word. We are the people of the word. We are Christians. We are believers. Yet the Bible has to instruct us that we must abide in God's word and a failure to do so means that God isn't even hearing our prayers we don't pray we don't know how to pray we ask amiss so what is prayer really all about yes we all have ideas our own ideas about prayer we know the formulas and the techniques but the truth is, many of us pray based on what we grew up seeing other people do in our families, and we utter words that we hear other people say, which really makes our prayers nothing more than vain repetitions of what other people say they believe about prayer. Truth be told, many of us come to prayer thinking that if I can say words a certain way, if I say it the way the pastor says it, or if I say it the way the bishop says it, or if I pray a certain way, then it's more likely that God is going to be able to hear me when I cry. We sometimes believe that if we use nice words, if we speak clearly, then God is more likely to accept those kinds of prayers. Listen. Your ability to speak well or to use very impressive words means absolutely nothing if you are not praying according to the will of God. This is what prompts Jesus to say in Matthew, the sixth chapter, and the fifth through the eighth verse. Listen to what Jesus said. He says, And when you pray, you shall not be as, as the hypocrites are. 
for they love to pray standing in the churches and the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen by other people. Verily I say unto you, they already have their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into that closet and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret and your father which seeth in secret shall reward you openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. But not you therefore, like unto them. Be not like them. For your father knoweth what things you have need of before you even ask him. So the point here is that prayer is a conversation with God the Father who already knows what you are in need of even before you ask. And, and he's looking for you to come to him without pretending or pretense or without a desire to manipulate or even to appease him. Many of us when we go to God we're usually at the last rung on the ladder and we're saying to God Lord help me. It is the only time that you believe that God can do something for you because you have run out of other options. God is not, God should not, and God will never be our last resort. When you go to God in prayer, he wants your heart, not your head. God delights in answering prayer that is asked according to his will. And brothers and sisters, let's be clear, he will reject those that are not in his will. Sometimes the problem is we don't know God's will and we think that God's will is something contrary to what we want and so we pray for what we want and not what God wants for us. So prayer is communing with God the Father and to help us better understand it I want to take a look at three aspects of prayer namely number one the purpose of prayer, number two the pattern of prayer and number three the power of prayer. Let's begin with the purpose of prayer. Many Christians are very confused about prayer and what it does. If God is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing, then why does anyone need to really pray? If he knows the end from the beginning, if he is the first and the last, if he is the alpha and the omega, and he knows everything that's going to happen, what possible effect could anything that you or I have to say to God can affect what he's already planning to do? This is a hard question, and it's a good question to ask. If God knows everything, why even bother to pray? Well, here's what you need to think about, and I'll give you a good example of why we pray. In Genesis, the 18th chapter, God expresses his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he expresses this plan to Abraham. But when God told Abraham the plan, Abraham begins to negotiate with God. Here is how it goes. And indulge me again as I read the text. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? This is Abraham talking to God. Far be it from you to do such a thing. 
to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. And we know God is no respecter of person. So Abraham is really making a case, what? Based on what he knows about the nature of God, right? So Abraham goes on to say, far be it from you, meaning I know you, Lord, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord says to Abraham, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? people. If I find 45 there, God said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? God said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? You see where this is going. God said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10. I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. From 50 to 10. Having read this, the question I ask is this. Did God eventually destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Of course he did. The answer is absolutely yes, which means it was already always God's will to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So the question then, if he planned to destroy it, what's the point of even talking to Abraham? What's the point of Abraham even coming to God? For the Bible tells us the fervent prayer of the righteous availeth much. And we can agree that Abraham was quite fervent, quite determined, knowing the wrath of God, knowing that he is humbling himself before a holy God who can only do the right thing. Yet he kept going to God moment after moment, time after time, and he dwindled 50 to 10, yet God still destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the purpose then of Abraham's prayer? What good did it do if God eventually destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, I want you to know that what was in Abraham's heart was to save his family, Lot, from the destruction. God knew that he would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but Abraham was looking out for the remnant in that city that was his own family. Abraham was not necessarily praying for 50 to be saved. Abraham was praying for the few that was his family that belonged to him that was in that city that needed to be saved. Prayer should never be about trying to get stuff from God. Prayer should be discerning the will of God for it was always the will of God to save Lot and his family. 
It was always the will of God to save a few from the destruction that was yet to come. And I have said this before, and I have maintained this time and time, even as we've just gotten through this 4th of July celebration. I said, God has not destroyed the United States of America. Why? Because the black church is still praying for the remnant that God wants to save. This world is falling apart all around us, but there's a remnant that is still appealing to God, a church that is still saying, Lord, if there be only a few more, Lord, do not destroy this nation. Lord, there is a few more. Will you save it? And as long as the spirit of the African-American is still beating and praying for this nation, we are the Abraham of this generation, praying on behalf of a people that don't even know that destruction is at their front door. The purpose of prayer is to find the will of God and being equipped with the strength to walk in greater faith according to the will that God has for our lives. That's the purpose of prayer. God's going to do what God's going to do. But the question is, where are you? Secondly, we have the pattern of prayer. I really like the fact that as the disciples walked with Jesus and they saw all the things that he did, they saw Jesus open blind eyes. They saw Jesus raise the dead. They saw Jesus heal the sick. They saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw Jesus walk on water. They saw the, the, the disciples saw Jesus do all of these things, yet not once did they ask Jesus, teach me how to heal. Teach me how to save the, restore the dead. Teach me how to turn water into grape juice. Not once did they ask Jesus. They asked Jesus, teach them how to pray. Teach them how to pray. Jesus' way of praying must have been something remarkable to witness, especially since we know that Jesus did nothing without the Father. But despite the fact, we can recognize that there is a pattern to prayer. Now, to make sure that we're all on the same page by pattern, I don't mean that there is some magical formula or way that you need to pray or that there's a certain way that you need to pray in order to get God to do what you want. God is not some kind of genie that you're going to rub the bottle and then voila, your wish becomes his command. That's not what I mean by the pattern of prayer. By the pattern of prayer, what I mean is there's an order to how you approach a holy God. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Many of you are familiar with the prophet Daniel. Daniel was one of the exiles from Israel that had earned a reputation as a wise and a respectable man in the entire kingdom. Now, as a result of his popularity, there were some that were around that did not really appreciate or like the standing that Daniel had with the king. They were jealous of Daniel, and so they went to the king, and they devised a plan that simply said that the king should issue a decree that whosoever prays to any other god or to any other man or anything other than the king for 30 days, they will be thrown into the lion's den. You all know the story. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, but the miracle of God was that he was completely unharmed. Now, the thing I want you to see about this is what Daniel did before he went into the lion's den. Picking up in Daniel 6, verse 10, we see, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, 
he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. The first pattern we see here is that Daniel had a specific place of prayer. The text tells us he went home to his upstairs room as he has always done. The establishment of a specific place of prayer is a meeting place, a private meeting place between you and God. And what I want to tell you is that some of us, you know that there are some places you can go that you can consecrate, that you can make holy, and that's the place where you choose to meet God. We see this often even with Jesus when the Bible tells us that Jesus would do what? He would always go to a mountain or to a quiet place to pray. In this technologically driven age where we have so much things going on and we are so easily distracted in our minds, it is hard to find a quiet place. And when you can't find a quiet place, even if you try to pray, guess what? You can't hear God. And so you have to get to a place where you can drown out all the noise of all this technology, Twitter and Facebook and all of this, to find a quiet place to pray. You need a set place of prayer. Secondly, Daniel had a set time of prayer. Three times a day, the Bible tells us Daniel would get down on his knees and pray, giving thanks to God. Now, I must again emphasize that the issue here is not praying one time or two times or three times a day. The issue here is a consistency of meeting with God in a manner that works for your lifestyle. It has to work for you according to you. And if you can find that quiet time where you can give undivided attention to God, then, my brothers and my sisters, you have met the first two criteria: a, a, a specific place of prayer and a specific time of prayer. And finally, Daniel had a set agenda for prayer. The text says that his window was opened towards Jerusalem. Daniel wanted to be back home in Judah, in Jerusalem, to be with his family and with all of his loved ones. Daniel wanted to, again, worship in the holy temple. And so his agenda for prayer was that, Lord, I'm turning my face towards Jerusalem. That's where I want to be. So Daniel would not only have a specific place of prayer, Daniel would not only have a specific time of prayer, but Daniel also had a specific reason for his prayer. I often tell people, sometimes our prayers are too vague. We talk, Lord, bless me. What does bless me mean? Bless me. What does that really mean? It's vague. What do you want God to do with that? For what is a blessing to you might not be a blessing to someone else. And the idea is that what does does God want from me? I have to find his will, but I have to pray specific prayers. Daniel had a specific place of prayer, a specific time of prayer, and a specific agenda of prayer. The Bible tells us those who come to him must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. That's God's word. But what are you seeking God for? If you don't even know what it is that you need, how will you even know when God has answered your prayer? I pray specific prayers. You heard we pray in the beginning of the service. We prayed very specific things. We prayed for this nation. We pray for healing of people with diseases. We pray for people. What are we doing? We are making a specific agenda at a time. Every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, a specific time, a specific place with a specific agenda for prayer. That's why we are here. 
This is the purpose and the pattern of prayer. And last, but certainly not least, the power of prayer. I want to go directly to my illustration because it's a little long, and it's in the, sec the book of 2 Chronicles, the 20th chapter, and the first through the 17th verses. Now, it is a little long, but I want you to listen carefully to the words. Some of you need to read your Bibles anyway. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. Already they are at Hazazon Tamar, that is Engedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid. He set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judea. Judea assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the towns of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and in Jerusalem and in the house of the Lord before the new court. And here's what Jehoshaphat said. O Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Do you see the pattern? Similar to what Abraham prayed. In your hand are power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you. In other words, those who come to God must first believe that he is. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? They have lived in it, and in it have built you a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we shall stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and save. See now. The people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. They reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you have given us to inherit. This is Jehoshaphat talking to God. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment upon them? I can even hear the cry, Black Lives Matter right now. God, when will you not? Are you not? For we are powerless against this great multitude, this great system that is coming against us. Here it is. Jehoshaphat says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the middle of the assembly. He said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed at this great multitude for the battle 
is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley before the wilderness of Jeruel. This battle is not for you to fight. Take your position. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. The important thing, one of the important things I want you to see in this text is when the Lord says this battle is not for you, there are some things that only God can do. And so when we pray to God, our prayers can't be or should not be the things that is within our power to do. We need to talk to God about the things that he can do. For the things that we can do, we should do. But many of us, we are acting in disobedience, already not doing the things that God has required of us, yet we ask God, to come in on our behalf, faced with this challenge, Jehoshaphat, with the prospect of annihilation, neither his military might, his intellect, or any other skill that he or the people may have, nothing that they availed of themselves could give them the victory. Jehoshaphat commented as the leader of the people, we do not know what to do. It was Jehoshaphat's prayer that God would deliver them from this vast multitude, but it was also God's will that they be delivered as well. So despite the insurmountable army and the great multitude that they are facing, God says, do not fear, do not be dismayed at this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. This battle is not yours. Take your position. Stand still and see the victory of the Lord on your behalf. Oh, Judah. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Allen Temple. Oh, Black Lives. Stand still and see the victory of the Lord. For this is a spiritual battle and the battle is not ours. It's God's. And if we pray and keep the faith in the will of God, we will see the salvation. Statues coming down, changes in Congress, changes all over the world. White people, black people, Asian people, all people chanting Black Lives Matter. This is different. Something is different. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Prayer. So the power of prayer is knowing in your head, but believing in your heart that the battle prob that the problems you and I face belong to God and not to you. Sometimes well-meaning people come around and they tell you things that will cause you to believe that you have what it takes to overcome your own situations. But while some of them may be right and their hearts may be in the right place and they have good intentions, the truth of the matter is if they are not speaking according to the will of God, then you are being led astray. We must get over the idea that we need to be strong to prove that we are of value. The issue of your value and mine was settled at the cross. Yes, there is a vast army against us. But God's purpose is that we should depend on him entirely. And if our dependence upon God is aligned with his will, then our weakness is an advantage for no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. For God says his strength is made perfect 
in our weakness, God in his mercy brings into our lives physical and emotional challenges that may appear as if they are vast, insurmountable problems that we could never get over. But I want you to understand, my brothers and my sisters, at our very best, at our very best, we are still not good enough. At our very best. So we must learn to stand with our wives, with our children, with our loved ones, with all of our communities. Stand and say, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. You are the alpha and you are the omega. You are the beginning and you are the end. You are the first and you are the last. And the scriptures tell us that you are immutable, meaning you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You change not. So the same God that responded to Abraham, the same God that responded to Jehoshaphat, the same God that responded to the Lord Jesus Christ when he prayed is the same God that will respond to you according to his will. The text tells us, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Just ask him. The condition is twofold. You must abide in Christ and his word must abide in you. Then you can ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. God's word needs to be deep down into your heart. And many of us don't know what to pray because God's word is not in us. This is the reason why we have on our Bible study we have scripture memorization. Why? Because we want to hide God's word in our hearts. And so I'm telling you today that when you think about prayer, when you think about prayer, you must first recognize that you must abide in God as God abides in you. And when you abide in God and God abides in you and his word is in you, then whatever you ask and pray, whenever you find your secret place, whenever you find your secret time, whenever you find your set agenda, when you come to God believing that he is and you pray according to his will, the Bible tells us that God will let it be as you desire. Delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can only delight yourself in the Lord if it is a God you know. And so today I pray, pray that you heard something that lets you understand that what you have been praying for might not be God's will for you. But the only way to learn and to know God's will for your life is to have him abide in you. And that is the first step to hearing God say yes. Just ask him. 
Just ask him, and he will say yes. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved.